Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 129. Gotta love how a calendar year book ends itself, don't you? It started on January 1st, 2023, with a Packer beatdown of the Vikings at Lambeau Field. It ends on December 31st, 2023, with a Packer beatdown of the Vikings, this time in Minnesota. And with everything else that occurred in the NFL on Sunday, the Packers find themselves in the exact same spot they were at the end of the 2022 season. One win at home, and they are Great night. Controlling our own destiny with a game right here to get into the dance. How about that? How can you not be romantic about football? That's where it ends up. Packers and Bears, another chapter in the rivalry with a lot on the line coming up on Sunday at Lambeau Field. They get the 325 kickoff designation, did not get Sunday Night Football. That belongs to the de facto AFC East championship game between the Dolphins and the Bills. 325 Lambo on CBS, and with the A crew, we get the Nance Romo crew on CBS Sunday afternoon. Whether or not that makes you happy, I don't know. I still kind of like Romo. I think that he's tailed off a bit from where he was in year one, but he seems to be resurgent a bit this year. That's the broadcast crew from Lambeau Field on Sunday. We are going to break the whole game down with Minnesota. We're also going to delve into the Jordan Love MVP conversation. It's time. I've been holding back. New year, new me. New year, new me. Same me, though. I have been holding back. I wanted to broach this topic a week or two ago. I had to wait until they were more in striking distance of the playoffs, and he had another signature game, which he did on Sunday. He's not the MVP. I'm not totally unhinged. He should be on the periphery of the conversation, though. When you break down the numbers, we will do just that. We'll also talk about the college football playoffs. I don't know if the two games played yesterday were aesthetically pleasing so much as they were close, and sometimes close is good enough if you want entertainment factor. We had a Rose Bowl go to overtime. Michigan came back and won that game. Washington almost blew it late to Texas, but now we get two unbeaten teams next Monday for the College Football National Championship. We'll talk a little bit about that Badger game at the Rely Quest Bowl against LSU. They blew it, but overall, I think you feel kind of good coming out of that game, even with the way it ended and some iffy officiating at the end of that one, too. And we'll talk about the Pacers and Bucks last night. Disappointing effort at home from this Bucks team. Dame had an awful night. The bench was bad, and you lose another game to this Indiana team. One more matchup in Indiana on Wednesday. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! We're going to smash up the middle, face hit the side. Snap. He looks, he throws, it's and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leans in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, on a pinnacle foul, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, I hope everybody had a good New Year's Eve. It went as I expected. The Packers were the built-in thing to do. My wife fell asleep in the first quarter. I just sat there watching the game, enjoying the win, scrolling Packer Twitter the entire time, mixing it up there. By the time it ended, we had a half an hour or whatever it was, 35 minutes until East Coast New Year's. Ball drops, bingo, bango. That's how you ring in 2024. 
And it was a good one for the Packers as well. I want to, before we dive into the X's and O's and what we feel good about or don't feel good about, not a lot to not feel good about, special teams. Again, hello. They just couldn't help themselves, could they? Things were going so well. They seized the early lead. The defense actually played really well on Sunday. Love was cooking. Jones back full strength for a second game. He looked really good. Jaden Reed had a record-breaking night. But special teams just couldn't help themselves. At the end of that game, they said, you know what? We got to do We got to do our thing. We've got to do our thing. New year, new me, not for the special teams. New year, new me. Same me, though. And they had the muffed punt at the end. Why Samari Toure was back there, I will never know. I know Jaden Reed got hurt, and he had been fielding punts, so he could not be back there, obviously. But why you wouldn't go to Keyshawn Nixon there? I'm not sure if anybody even asked LaFleur about that at the end of the game, why they decided to go with Toure. He muffs it, and that leads to the only touchdown the Vikings scored. You almost can't credit that against the defense. You can't. The defense gave up three points. You can't give that touchdown as points against the defense. But the special teams just couldn't hold themselves back. We're going to break all that down. We're going to get things set for the Bears matchup. But I just want to take a macro view real quickly of how impressive it is. And this has been a roller coaster year, which we expected with the young roster. The youngest roster in the league. You had a quarterback in his first year as a starter. You expected this to be like Raging Bull at Six Flags Great America. A lot of ups, a lot of downs, hopefully more ups than downs. But when you bake this whole thing together with the youngest roster in the league and Jordan Love in his first year as a starter and learning all of the ins and outs of that, then you add on top of the youngest roster in the league a team that has been absolutely crushed by injuries all year on both sides of the ball. Put that on the list. Also put on the list that 30 to 35% of this team's salary cap is tied up in David Bakhtiari and Aaron Rodgers. And if you want to lump Jair into that, you could probably make it 40 or 45% is lumped into those three guys who have given you literally nothing, a little bit less than nothing, and half of nothing, I guess. You would say Jair has at least been out there for a few games. When you factor all that in, Youngest roster in the league, injuries across the board, first-year starting quarterback, and about 40 to 45% of your salary cap tied into a guy that is not even on the team, a guy that's been out since week one, and a guy that's maybe played a handful of games this year. And we are in the exact same spot as a team that they were in last year. That's kind of amazing that they end up at the same end point. And I know every every year is a different narrative. Every season has its different chapters. And there are things that undermine the team last year where if Rodgers is healthy, are they still a 10, 11, 12-win team or a 13-win team like they had been years previous? I get all that. It's hard to compare year to year. When you think of all of the things that happened this offseason and finally deciding to trade Aaron Rodgers and go with Jordan Love and all that stuff, to end up at the same point that they were last year is really impressive. And I think you saw that if you watched the footage. It was either on the Packer Twitter page or it was on the Sunday Night Football on NBC Twitter page. The receiving line, as the Packers were going back to their locker room, Jordan Love was the last guy back there. He got his champagne. He didn't get his turkey like on Thanksgiving Day. But redemption was sweet. I guess it was apple cider. He did get his champagne, and he got his Happy New Year hat. They did the whole thing on NBC. That was something coming out of Thanksgiving Day, though. We thought, God, he didn't get the turkey leg. He played really well on the road, beat a first-place team on the road on a short week as a first-year starting quarterback, and we couldn't get this guy a turkey leg. That's the whole thing with playing on Thanksgiving. He didn't get that, but he got the champagne. He was the last guy, though, to come to the locker room, and Goody was waiting on him. 
And Goody, they had this whole bro hug, and you could just tell the smile on Goody's face because he's been maligned, and we maligned him on this podcast. I maligned up and down when we were in the middle of the year, and they were losing those games to Denver and Oakland, and they looked so bad against Minnesota at home, and it started to look like the season could be on its way to 3-9. and nine. Remember, they were 3-6 and six entering the toughest part of their schedule, and we said, why, oh, they could be 3-9 and nine if this thing keeps going this way. And you could be talking about a top five, top four pick. And we spent 10 minutes or more on a podcast going through draft by draft, the Goody drafts, and how the jury was still out on the last two. They're looking spectacular, though. But the previous drafts had not been good, had not yielded a lot of talent that was still on the team or even still in the league. Remember, we did that whole thing. And redemption has to be so sweet for him right now. Watching this team rise, watching his picks of the last two years come together and become important impact players on national TV, and getting this team to a spot where they are the exact same position they were last year with the youngest roster in the league, an 8-8 eight and eight record, a home game, and if you win that home game, you are going to get into the playoffs. That has to be a satisfying feeling for Brian Gutekunst. We maybe have to go back and do a rehash at the end of the year, at least go through the last two drafts that have given us guys like like Dontavian Wicks, like Jaden Reed, like Rasheed Walker at left tackle, who's been getting better and better and better every, every week since that low point against Minnesota when they were still rotating in and out, and all of a sudden he looks like he could be the left tackle of the future. I'm not saying you're not going to draft a left tackle, but with the way he has played now the final eight or nine weeks, it's not as big of a need. I would have said in week seven or eight, and I think we did say, that's probably where they're going to spend their first-round pick, wherever it ends up, whether it's top five or top ten, and it looked like it was going to be in that range at that point. It felt very likely they were going to have to spend that on a left tackle. I don't know that I feel that way anymore with the way Rasheed Walker has played, with the way Zach Thomas played. I, you always get offensive linemen, but maybe that's not the highest priority anymore. It's just been incredible to watch this team get things turned around, and it culminates with another big performance on Sunday Night Football in Minnesota. Jordan Love, let's start at the start. Are you ready for the Jordan Love MVP conversation? Are you ready? I need to, we'll splice in some Triple H. But I just got to know one thing. Are you ready? No, I said, are you ready? Yet another awesome performance from Jordan Love. That first touchdown pass to Jaden Reed. And I know he missed some passes. He's going to miss passes every game. We talk about it every podcast. You're never going to hit every one of them. And for the group out there that really still doesn't like Jordan Love, and as I learned on the Green and Gold Fan Zone Facebook page this week, when I put this part of the conversation we're about to have, should he be in the MVP conversation? I put that. I just floated it out there on the Green and Gold Fan Zone page. And a lot of people liked it, and a lot of people loved it, but a lot of people in the comments section were telling me to put down the crack pipe. That's what they told me. They told me to do that. Very rude. So there are still a lot of Packer fans out there that, for one reason or another, don't seem to like Jordan Love very much, don't think he's the franchise quarterback, still think this team needs to move on, and still thinks at some point we're all going to see what they're seeing. Nobody's seeing what I'm seeing. Despite the fact that, and I used this in that Fan Zone page post, Charles Woodson in the middle of that game on Sunday night said, man, this kid's going to be something special. Brett Favre, who is revered still on that Green and Cold Fan Zone page, like some sort of deity, he had a tweet the next morning that said incredible game and Jordan Love looks awesome and no one wants to face this team if they can get in the playoffs. I use that as collateral and still, still people are bearish on Jordan Love. Some of those fans on that page, I can't understand it. 
another fantastic performance. And that pass to Jaden Reed where he just dropped it in the bucket. And they even said on the NBC broadcast it looked like it looked like Aaron Rodgers. It looked like Aaron Rodgers' footwork. He was kind of able to throw up his back foot, set his feet a little bit, but kind of a jump pass too and just whoop, looped it right in there to Jaden Reed. That's a pass that he was not making earlier in the year. And that set the tone for the rest of the night. 24 of 33, 256 yards, three touchdowns, no picks, QB rating of 125. He also had the touchdown on the ground where he had to muscle his way in. Four total touchdowns, no turnovers. Hey, Sean Clifford did get in the game. The Sean Clifford stands out there got exactly what they wanted. I've gotten into it with a few of those guys as well, not just on the Green and Gold Fan Zone page, but on my personal Facebook page early in the year. They were saying, no, oh, Love's not the guy. Clifford's the guy. <laughs> Sean Clifford's our guy. And in an early podcast, I think we even brought up, did you watch the college football season last year or the year before in Sean Clifford, Penn State? That's our guy? Come on. But he finally got into the game. Sean Clifford finally made it into a game. And he completed a pass to Bo Melton. And it was an underthrow, which I also thought was kind of funny because the number one thing the love detractors were going with most of the year was accuracy, but specifically deep ball accuracy or he didn't have the arm strength. And then Clifford, their hero, goes out there and he underthrew that ball. It was completed, but he way underthrew that ball to Melton. That should have been a touchdown. But Clifford gets his, I think that's his first completion, isn't it, in the regular season? Love now on the year. 34 total touchdowns on the season for Jordan Love. Hasn't had a turnover, it feels like, in forever. 16 touchdowns, one pick in his last seven games. Now, again, is he the MVP? No, he is not. I'm not that crazy. I'm not a total lunatic. All I'm saying is, and I think that got misconstrued in the Green and Gold Fan Zone page post as well, and it says specifically in there, is he in the conversation? I didn't say he is the MVP. That would be one thing if I said Jordan Love is the MVP. I said, is he in the conversation? It's crazy that things get misconstrued on Facebook sometimes. <laughs> but he's not the MVP. Lamar Jackson now is something like minus 10,000 to win the MVP. And rightfully so. He's got, what, 3,000 yards passing, 24 touchdowns, 800 yards on the ground, another seven or eight touchdowns there. That team is the number one team in the NFL and solidified that position by blowing the doors off of Miami and Baltimore over the weekend. We'll do an NFL recap here in just a second. They are the number one team in the league right now. They're the Super Bowl favorites, and he is rightfully the favorite to win the MVP. And then you throw in other guys in that list, too. McCaffrey should probably be higher than he is. Him and Brock Purdy hurt each other by being on the same team. Purdy's in the conversation. Dak's been in the conversation. Tyreek Hill certainly should be in the conversation for the historic numbers he's putting up. Hell, CeeDee Lamb could almost make his way into a top 10 conversation. He's going to be a little short of 2,000 yards receiving on the year. He set some records for Dallas on Saturday night, which ended in a chaotic scene. We'll talk about that, too, during the NFL recap. Those are the top five or six people, and rightfully so. All I'm saying is... Jordan Love, is he in the top 15? Is he in the top 10? I think he is. I think he is fringe top 10. I think if you extended it to 10, 11, or 12, I believe that's where he is right now. When you factor in all of the stuff that we just talked about, the amount of salary cap this team has tied up in players that are either not on the team or not doing anything for the team, the youngest roster in the league, constant turnover of his weapons, his starting left tackle only played one week of the year, his stud running back, who I still think is the most dynamic playmaker on this team, Aaron Jones, he's only been fully healthy for two games, the last two games. He's only had his number one playmaker healthy for two games this year. And the wide receiving room is constantly in flux with injuries. Christian Watson is there for a few games, then he's out for a few games. Jaden Reed has missed games. Dontavian Wicks missed the game. Luke Musgrave hasn't been back in five or six weeks now as Tucker Kraft has come on. 
he's doing what he's been doing with a young roster, with a young tight end receiving room, without his star running back, and he's making it happen with guys like Bo Melton, who they picked up off the practice squad, and Malik Heath, who was an undrafted free agent. Put all that into the cocktail. It's It has to get him inside that top 15, top 10 conversation. I don't know if the NFL anymore does it where if you have an MVP vote, if you're not just voting for top five, I think you have to give 10 names. He should get a handful of votes in that 9-10 range with what he has done. That's how good his first year as a starter has been. He now has 30 touchdowns on the year, 11 picks, 34 total touchdowns, and 12 total turnovers. He is top 10 in the league in quarterback rating. He's top 10 in the league in QBR. He is number three in total touchdowns. He's top eight in passing yards. The completion percentage is not going to be there because it was so low to begin the year. He's 63 or 64%. He's not probably going to get in the top 15 of that stat, but basically every major quarterbacking stat, he is either at number 10 or inside the top 10. And I just think when you look in totality at what this franchise has been this year with the super young roster and all of the injuries and all that kind of stuff and how bad the defense has been, for that team, this team to be where they are right now, and Jordan Love is the primary cog on that team, he's got to get some consideration. He is, in my opinion, definitely in the conversation. He is not the MVP, but he is in the conversation. And if they have to go top 10 or top 15 deep as an MVP voter, you will read about Jordan Love getting some votes. He'll be a Pro Bowl player. That doesn't move the needle for anybody. I don't know that he'll be all pro, which would put him top two or three quarterback in the league. But I think he is firmly right now in that top 10 conversation. And he is the guy. He is the guy. Whatever the the haters and losers, of which there are many out there, say, he is the guy. Even if something happens poorly this Sunday against the Bears, and maybe he has a bad game and throws a pick or two and the Packers lose, don't freak out. This is the guy, and as we talked about on the podcast heading into this weekend and on a few of them in the last few weeks, that was always the number one goal of this year. Could you figure out with a definitive yes or no, is Jordan Love the franchise quarterback moving forward? And another performance the way he had on Sunday just gives you a more emphasis. It's reinforced that he is the guy. What he's going to cost, I have no idea. We're probably staring down the barrel of 50 mil a year on a four to five year extension. Love was fantastic again on Sunday. Aaron Jones had a tremendous game. Just gives you that extra layer offensively where he is somebody you can go to and get a spark from. Just when he touches the ball on a handoff, it's just different. I think Tariko even said that during the Sunday Night Football broadcast. There's just something about when he hits a hole, when he gets the ball in that position, it's just different. He has a different speed, a different electricity out there. 20 carries, 120 yards. Last two weeks now, what do you have last week? All of a sudden, he's gonna. if he has a good game on Sunday, he'll be the team's rushing leader, despite the fact that he's only played, he's only carried the ball 120 times. He had 20 carries for 120 on Sunday night, 21 carries, 127 against Carolina. The l- only two weeks of the year where he has been fully healthy. Remember, he left that week one Chicago game early third quarter after the touchdown reception with the hamstring injury that hamstrung him then for the remainder of the year until this two-game run. What a difference it has made having him back, and that should make another pretty big difference, you would think, on Sunday with the rematch against Chicago. Patrick Taylor was a shout-out, Pat, had a pretty good game, too. Eight carries, 30 yards. A.J. Dillon, 7 for 27 with that gigantic thumb cast. He left and did return. Jones did leave to go to the injury tent. I forget what quarter it was. Third quarter, I thought, God bless. <laughs> Is he already? Come on, really? We just got a full workload last week. It looked like we were getting a full workload this week. He did come back, though, from whatever that brief stint in the blue injury tent, the mysterious blue injury tent. What goes on in there? I want to know. 
It's like the end of the movie Field of Dreams. What's out there? What's in that blue tent? He did come back from that, though, and had another tremendous game as the fully healthy lead back again. Let's talk about the receivers. Bo Melton. Bo knows football. Bo, what was the what was the catchphrase I was seeing? Bo pack Bo instead of go pack go. Bo pack Bo. Seventh round pick, cast away, picked up on the practice squad, and now in back to back weeks has been another breath of fresh air for this receiving room, which has needed it because of the injuries. That last catch he got from Clifford put him over 100 for the day. First 100-yard receiver on the season. What would the odds have been on that pick, said the degenerate? (laughs) Degenerates always think in those terms when something crazy happens. What would the odds have been? What odds could I have gotten? If you had a bet before the year of who was going to be the first wide receiver to have a 100-yard receiving game and how long it would take, I don't know that anyone would have said week 16 or week 17 and Bo Melton would be the guy, but there he was. Six catches, 105 yards. He had the touchdown. There was the one drop in there when they went for it on fourth and one or fourth and two or whatever it was. Wasn't the most perfectly placed ball by Jordan Love. It was on its hands, though, in something that Bo Melton has to haul in, and I think he'd tell you that probably. He makes up for that with a touchdown catch late. Six for 105 and a touchdown. What if he becomes something? You've got all these parts now. Watson and Dobbs and Reed and Wicks, and there's parts of all their games that you love, and then you still kind of got Malik Heath, who has been impressive in spots. Is Bo Melton going to become a guy now? Jaden Reed did leave the game after that touchdown reception right before half. Apparently he was hurt before that, but played through it. He does not play in the second half. He, it sounds like, tested negative for whatever they were looking for, fractured ribs or something like that. And his status for Sunday is obviously massive for this team. If he's out there, it's a whole different offense. Not that the offense can't score without him. He adds that extra layer, though, you would say. And he's dynamic where he could get in the backfield. You can use him in motion. That'll be something to watch. He does profile a little bit to me like a poor man's Tyreek Hill. I saw that on the Green and Gold Fan Zone page, too. As long as we're going to talk about Jordan Love as the MVP, let's talk about (laughs) Jaden Reed as the potential next Tyreek Hill. Let's have the most unattached podcast you can possibly have. We'll just float off into space. He profiles like that, though, doesn't he? He's slight in stature like Tyreek Hill is. He's not as bulky as Tyreek Hill is. He's got the speed, though. You can use him in a variety of ways. Six catches, 89 yards, two touchdowns. He breaks Sterling Sharp's franchise record for most receptions in a rookie season. Anytime you're in the same breath as Sterling Sharp. Tucker Craft, another solid game, 6 for 48. Didn't try to leapfrog anybody this time. Romeo Dobbs had 3 for 28. Malik Keith did have that one catch over the middle. Jones added one catch, 10 yards, so he has 130 total yards on the day. Offense was cooking. We said on Friday we had hopes that this team could score 20-plus. They scored 30-plus for a second straight week. Two straight weeks now, 33 points put up by the offense as they just continue to get more and more confident and impressive with each passing week. Let's talk about the defense. I don't think it's going to save Joe Barry's job. I had a texter on the B93 Morning Show this morning say, John, my only concern coming out of Sunday is did Joe Barry save his job? We did talk about that. I don't know if it was on the podcast on Friday or on the morning show about if you had to choose. And I've seen a lot of polls like this or saw a lot of them going into the weekend. If you had to choose between one of two scenarios, a choose-your-own-adventure book where we don't fall off a cliff. Turn to page 83. You fell off a cliff. Well, damn it. If you had to choose one path, though, turn to page 41. Packers lose their last two games, don't get in the playoffs, but Joe Barry gets fired. And they make a move on that defensive side of the football with that coaching staff. Turn to page 72. Packers win their final two games. They get into the playoffs. Who knows what happens from there, but that does save Joe Barry's job. I think the poll that I saw from ESPN Milwaukee heading into the weekend 
it was a resounding 70 to 30 or 68 to 32 kind of deal that said I would rather lose the two games and see a change with the defensive coaching staff than win a couple games, make the playoffs and then Joe Barry sticks around for another year. I don't think this changes the Joe Barry future status. I really do not. I said that on the Friday morning show outside of a Super Bowl which Okay, so we'll do Jaden Reed as the next Tyreek Hill. We'll do Jordan Love for MVP, and we'll do 7C the Super Bowl. Let's just do it all. Let's just air it all out. That, in my mind, and that's just my personal opinion, that is the only thing, the only real-world scenario where we see Joe Barry as the defensive coordinator for this Packer team in 2024 into 2025. That's the only scenario. I don't think this game saves him. I think Matt LaFleur very specifically when talking about the defense post game said it's one game. He was happy with it and he liked the defensive calls, but he did go out of his way to say it's one game. I do think it sounds like he gave Joe Barry a game ball, though, at the end of the locker room celebration, which doesn't make me feel great. I don't think Joe Barry's staying on Sunday night's performance, but you do have to give him credit and you have to give the defense credit. They had a hell of a game, and I realize it's against... Nick Mullins and Jaron Hall and Hall looked awful. But the Packers have made awful quarterbacks look really good. They went to Nick Mullins to begin the second half. I'm sure a lot of you out there had the same feeling I did of, oh, God, are they going to let Nick Mullins come back now after you played a dominant first half? They make the switch to Nick Mullins, the journeyman quarterback. Maybe he gives you enough to get the offense sparked. And then they do get down the field inside the 10-yard line, but the Packers were able to come up with a stop on fourth down. They just did a lot of things right. Quay Walker said at the end of the game he liked the defensive calls from Joe Barry in that game because he called some different exotic blitz packages. We saw Quay Walker get a sack. They forced turnovers. They got the early interception from Corey Ballantyne, who was tremendous on Justin Jefferson in place of Jair Alexander. He got a turnover. Preston Smith was outstanding. Another strip sack for him and another turnover. And the Packer offense turned those two turnovers into touchdowns. Complimentary football. We did it. It took us 17 weeks, but we did it. The defense did something in the offense, then did something with it. The play calls were good. They had four sacks on the day. The only touchdown, like we said at the top, they gave up was because of a special teams blunder. 11 tackles for Keyshawn Nixon. He had a half sack. Isaiah McDuffie, before he left, had a half a sack. Devontae Wyatt had a half a sack. He's got five sacks on the year now for an interior lineman. He seems to be progressing in the right direction. Preston Smith with that sack. We talked about him on the Friday podcast or maybe the Victory Tuesday podcast last week. Eight sacks on the year. And I thought we had reached just about the end of his time in Green Bay. When they signed the Smith brothers in 2019, he had 12 sacks that year. Then he dipped down to four in the pandemic year. But after that... Nine in 2021, eight and a half last year, eight and counting this year. He's putting together some pretty good numbers, and I would guess rising the ranks into the maybe top 25 or top 20 in terms of career sacks as a Packer. He was solid, more than solid, again on Sunday, and the defense held up its end of the bargain. If you're worried that that is going to save Joe Barry, I just don't see it. If they shut down the Bears the way they shut down the Vikings – And then if they win a playoff game, I don't think we have to have a realistic conversation about is Joe Barry saving his job. I don't think in the real world that conversation has to happen unless we're doing a podcast heading into divisional round weekend. If they win this weekend, they get in and then they win a wild card game. Then I think if you are worried about Joe Barry coming back, your fears may have some legitimacy to them. Right now, it was a one-off. It was fun to watch them perform the way they did. I think it does help with the Jair suspension, with that message being received the way the secondary played as well. 
if they would have gone out there and gotten torn up by Jaron Hall and Nick Mullins and Justin Jefferson went off for 10 catches and 180 yards and two touchdowns, I'm not sure the suspension message they were trying to send to Jair, if that's how things play out on Sunday. I don't know if that is received the same way. Now Jair had to sit at home and watch all of these seventh-round picks or the guys they got in trade in Valentine's case and Valentine. He had to go out there and watch them play really good football and shut down Justin Jefferson. Maybe that helps reinforce that suspension too. Let's just enjoy it as a one-off. It was good to see after three horrifically bad performances against the Giants and the Buccaneers especially and the Panthers as well on Christmas Eve. Enjoy that they played well for one game, but it's just one game. Now you end up with the win and you're in scenario. We got everything right. We made fun of the special teams. Anders Carlson missed another extra point. Is Anders Carlson, Anders Carlson is going to end up with a better field goal percentage than his extra point percentage. He has now missed six or five or six extra points. He is 84% though on field goals. I can't say that he hasn't been rock solid on field goals. 26 of 31 as a rookie, 84%. He is 86% on extra points. It may end up, if he keeps trending in that way, if he misses another one on Sunday, it may end up where his field goal percentage is going to be better than his extra point percentage. And then the whole Samari Toure thing, I don't know what was going on there, but Rich Bisacci and that special teams unit, they just continue every game to make at least one mistake. It's to the point where you wonder if they should even put guys out there for the punt return. Can you get fined for that? Is there a penalty for that? Because if you are... I guess you have to have somebody defend the fake punt. <laughs> if you just put just put six linemen out there and a linebacker maybe or some roving safety, don't put anybody back to receive it. Only bad things can happen if you put somebody back there to receive the punt. Just let it hit wherever it's going to go and let them down the ball. Yet another black eye for what has been a t- just terrible unit over the course of however many years now. You bring in Bisacci. I know we've been over this. You bring in Bisacci. You make him the highest paid special teams coach in the league. You get all the guys that he wanted to get, the the expert special teamers, the guys that are good at just that. You brought those guys in for him, and still it's one of the worst, if not the worst, unit in the league. Packers get the 33-10 to win. They are 8-8 eight and eight with that win. They are now 2-2 two and two in this stretch of five games that we set at the beginning of it before that Monday night game against New York. This will determine whether or not they make the playoffs. At that time, I said 5-0 and oh obviously gets you in. 4-1 probably gets you in. I think we said 3-2 and two could get you in, and that's where we're at now. If they win this game against Chicago, they would go 3-2 and two in that stretch, and that would be enough to get them in at 9-8. and eight. It's the exact same scenario as last year. Let's hope this team learned its lesson from last year where Detroit came into Lambeau Field, put it on them. They were the more physical team. They looked like they wanted it more than the Packers did that final game of 2022. Let's hope it doesn't look like that. The Bears have been trending up too. Hey, they won. They are 7-9 and nine heading into this game. The Packer win against Minnesota did officially eliminate them from playoff contention. That was also a fun graphic to throw on the Green and Gold fan zone page after the game on Sunday. But it all comes down to this. This game... Unless I'm missing something. Remember, we played the clip a week or two ago of the de facto NFC North championship game from 2013 where he's got Randall Cobb. It was the Rodgers to Cobb, and they win at Soldier Field and win the NFC North. This Packer-Bear game is probably the first game since that that has had some real tangible stuff on the line just outside of the rivalry and trying to beat a division opponent. I'm trying to think of anything between 2013 and this game. They had the Rodgers comeback opening night of 2018, but ultimately the Packers had a bad year that year, and the Bears won the division. In terms of what's on the line in a single game, this has to be the most that's been on the line in a Packer-Bear game since that 2013 matchup. 
Bears can play spoiler. That's all they can do. They're not going anywhere this year. Fields has been playing a bit better. Their defense, especially since they picked up Montez Sweat from Washington, has been playing a lot better, putting pressure on the quarterback. Keeping our eye on the injury report will be key this week. You hopefully are going to get Jaden Reed out there, even though he left and didn't return the second half. He said post game it's basically a mind over matter situation where he knows he's going to be hurting probably. But can he play through it on Sunday the way he apparently did play through it, at least in the second quarter Sunday night in Minnesota? Are you going to get Dontavian Wicks back? Is there a chance we see Luke Musgrave back in tandem with Tucker Craft? Christian Watson is always a question mark, although it was reported on NBC during the game on Sunday night that he does think he can and wants to obviously be back for this game against Chicago. It all comes down to this, a 325 kickoff at Lambeau on Sunday, CBS. It is the first Packer-Bear game on CBS since 1993 before Fox jumped in and basically had the NFC rights there. We're going to get the A-team, too. Jim Nance and Tony Romo on the call. That'll be this Sunday afternoon. Of course, we'll be talking more about that once we get to the end of the week. I'm not sure if we're going to do a Thursday podcast. I'm off on Friday. I've got one more day I've got to burn. And I don't think anything major is happening Thursday night that we would need to have for the Friday morning podcast. Bucks play on Wednesday. They don't play again until the weekend. Man, we might we might do a Thursday podcast right away. Anyway, Packers get the big win on Sunday in Minnesota. Let's rip through the NFL over the weekend, starting with the well, the Browns clinch a playoff spot behind Joe Flacco, and then Saturday night we had the Cowboy Lions disaster at the end of that game. First of all, we got some next level Mike McCarthy late game clock management in that game where. The Cowboys had the ball. They had a 20-13 to 13 lead. They were milking the clock, and then all of a sudden they were throwing the ball and throwing the ball deep toward the sideline. <laughs> that was some classic Mike McCarthy fourth-quarter time management. I've seen this play before. I've seen this movie before. Two thumbs down. It ends up where the Lions get the ball back. They get down. They score the touchdown, and Dan Campbell, with his nuts in a wheelbarrow, goes out there to go for two, go for the win. They get their trick play, which they stole from the Packers, by the way. Go back. I think it was the 2022 Packer-Lion game in Detroit. Remember the Packers tried that where they made their left tackle, David Bakhtiari, in that situation. For the Lions, it was Taylor Decker on Saturday night. They made Bakhtiari eligible. They ran a play toward the right, and then Rodgers tried that jump pass back to the left, and he just underthrew it, and Aiden Hutchinson was able to deflect it. That's the exact same play. They put that in their back pocket. Dan Campbell clearly saw something he liked there, put that in his back in his back pocket for a moment like Saturday night. They go to that play. They hit the two-point conversion. Lions are celebrating. It's 21-20 with whatever, 20 seconds left. And the Cowboys did have a timeout. And their kicker, that Cowboy kicker is absurd. The soccer player turned field goal kicker, he hasn't missed a kick all year. And I guess he's consistently good from 60 to 65 yards. I've heard rumors that they would even they would think about in the right wind conditions, maybe with the wind at his back, of throwing him out there for a 65 plus, maybe a 70 yard field goal. Crazy. Maybe in Denver with the thin air. So they still would have had some time and a timeout and the best kicker in the league. But at that moment, it looked like the Lions had the win, a 21-20 win, a signature win in Dallas where the Cowboys had not lost. And then what was it, about 10 seconds after the play was over? Boop, throw that flag. And it was the same refing crew that refed the Packer-Chiefs game that made the no-call on the pass interference and the no-call on the roughing the passer for Patrick Mahomes or the call on the roughing the passer for Patrick Mahomes. It was that same crew that has been much maligned this year. 
They go back and say, nope, Taylor Decker did not report as eligible, so he was an ineligible man downfield, illegal touching, they took it off the board. And then Dan Campbell in an all-time eight-year-old temper tantrum moment, which we've all been through, where something looks like it's going your way, then it's taken away from you, and then you stick with it just out of spite because you're angry. It backed him up to the seven or eight-yard line, and he went for two again, when at that point, just kick the extra point, get to overtime, and get your revenge there. Then the Cowboys were offsides. Then they got another chance inside the four-yard line, and Goff was low on the throw outside. It ends up being a Cowboy 20-19 to win, and Lions fans and Dan Campbell were livid. There are a few things that I can think of in my life. If I were that official and I saw an enraged Dan Campbell coming at me, <laughs> that's on the short list of terrifying moments, I would think, in my life. I just shipped my pants. I would think that's on that's a top five, oh God, moment when an angry Dan Campbell is coming at you. And Campbell said at the end of the game that I guess they talked to the officials pregame and he laid it out what they intended to do if there was a situation like that. He said, I told him this is what's gonna happen, and this guy and this guy and this guy. Now I would say in the defense of the Cowboys, and maybe we say they the Lions weren't totally screwed, what the Lions tried to do was a little trickery. They brought in an offensive lineman. And then that offensive lineman headed toward the official, and Taylor Decker and another offensive lineman headed to the official. The Lions were trying to make it look like number 70, whoever that is. They tried to make it look like, as he was coming off the bench, that he was going to be the guy that reported as eligible. The reason Dan Campbell explained this to the officials is the trickery. He wanted to make it look like that was the guy reporting as eligible when really Taylor Decker was going to walk up to him and report as eligible, and number 70 wasn't going to say anything to the official, which is, I guess, what happened. But the official got confused. The official got confused in the moment. And I would say, if we are trusting an official to remember a conversation from four hours ago about an intricate play design on a two-point conversion that may or may not happen, I don't know. Maybe a little bit of that is on Dan Campbell. I, I, at the end of the day, I err on the side of the Lions got screwed, nuts and bolts, we got screwed. When I really sit back and think about it, though, Dan Campbell getting upset about an official not remembering a conversation from four hours ago when a million other things have happened, and it's on a pretty intricate play design where what if the official was half paying attention to a pregame conversation Dan Campbell is having with him? And the intent for the Lions was to confuse, and they not only confused the Cowboys or the officials, they confused the defense as well. I would also say that if that official does his job, apparently, and hears Taylor Decker report and not number 70, he still has to tell the Cowboy defense that 68 is reporting as eligible. And if that happens, is Taylor Decker wide open? You know what I mean? The official got it wrong, apparently. And he told, and it was said on the PA, that number 70 is eligible. Okay, well, if you're a Cowboy defensive lineman or a linebacker, you say, okay, then this is probably something we should watch out for, number 70. That's likely why nobody was defending Taylor Decker. Had the official gotten it correct and said number 68 is reporting is eligible, chances are that Cowboy defense was going to pay a little bit more attention to Taylor Decker. And I'm not sure the play execution ends the way that it actually did in the moment because the Cowboys didn't think they had to pay attention to Taylor Decker. Just a weird, weird ending, and I think Lions fans probably rightfully upset, but there is some nuance there, too. We saw the Bills barely hang on against the Patriots 27-21. Bears did the Packers a favor. They beat the Falcons 37-17. That opened the door for a control-your-own-destiny situation for the Packers. Colts right now are the last team in the AFC. They hang on against the Raiders 23-20. Rams got that road win against the Giants. At that time when that game was wrapping up, the Packers 
could have still used that Giants win against the Rams, and Mason Crosby went out there for the Giants for a 54-yard field goal that would have won it in New York, and that would have given the Packers control of their own destiny, and he just missed it. Rams win again. They're 9-7, and and they are a team I don't think anybody wants to see in the playoffs. Cardinals come back on the Eagles. The Eagles are a mess. I'll tell you this much. If the Packers find their way in, if they are able to sneak in, in terms of top NFC teams that scare me, I think it's only the Niners right now. The Cowboys look vulnerable. The Eagles are falling apart every week. At home with a, what, three-touchdown lead on a three-win Cardinal team, they cough it up and lose at home 35-31. I mean, give me... Give me the Packers in Philly in a 2-7 matchup or whatever it end up being, or Packers-Cowboys in Dallas. That would be a little tougher. There are top NFC teams, though, that are faltering down the stretch where I don't think the Packers don't have a chance if they play them in a playoff in a first-round matchup. Cardinals get a win in Philly 35-31. The Saints, they blew me up for my Buccaneers bet, but they do keep my NFC South bet intact at least for another week. Now, I guess I need the Buccaneers to lose at Carolina in the final week, and the Saints have to beat the Falcons. I thought the Saints, if they won their final two, they would win the division. That's not the case. Saints get the win in Tampa 23-13. Now, they need to beat the Falcons, and the Bucs would have to lose in Carolina. Not likely, but you're saying there's a chance. Niners take care of the Commanders 27-10. Panthers get shut off by the Jaguars 26-0. That Panther offense came back down to earth. Ravens, like we said earlier, just blow the doors off of Miami 56-19. They are clearly right now the number one team in the NFL with back-to-back wins against San Francisco on the road, then at home against Miami. Texans and C.J. Stroud, they're in the mix. 26-3 win in Houston. Steelers are the team that helped the Packers out ultimately. They beat the Seahawks. That is what gave the Packers control of their own playoff destiny. Pittsburgh wins in Seattle 30-23. And then you add the Broncos, Chargers, nothing burger of a game, 16-9. Chiefs do win the AFC East, and everybody rejoiced, and they covered, and Travis Kelsey was happy, and Taylor Swift was happy, and the whole world was happy after that. 25-17 25-17 to 17 win at home against the Bengals. Had to come back and win that game. Harrison Butker won me a fantasy championship in that game. He kicked about a million field goals. Thank you, Harrison. That wraps up week 17. Now we get set for the final week of the year. And the two biggest games really are probably Packers-Bears. And then you get the Sunday night game, Bills and Dolphins, where if the Bills win in Miami, they could win the division. And there are scenarios where they could lose or be out. That's how crazy it is in the AFC. That's how it could look for the Bills. A win and a two seed or a lose and you're out. Not saying that's how it's going to be. You have to watch how the rest of the games play out before that Sunday night game. But that possibility exists where that could be the scenario for the Bills heading into Sunday night football this weekend. All right, let's talk about college football a little bit. You want to hit on the Badgers? I don't know. I felt kind of good about that game. I'm not going to lie. I was drifting in and out. I was flipping channels a little bit. I went for a run. I took a nap kind of too in the fourth quarter. Tanner Mordecai, that was that's what we were hoping for all year. That was the Tanner Mordecai we were hoping to see for a lot of the year. I think we kind of aerated. There was a little bit of a dairy raid there against LSU. LSU had less people in the transfer portal than the Badgers did heading into Monday's matchup. Mordecai threw for 378, three touchdowns, no picks. It is the fifth best individual passing day for a Badger quarterback ever. Will Pauling put an exclamation point on a great first year in Wisconsin. Eight catches, 143 yards, two touchdowns. Bryson Green had his best game. He said he's coming back two postgames, seven catches, 105, and a touchdown. Packers, or Packers, Badgers had multiple two-touchdown leads. They lose those late. There was some questionable officiating, too, especially on that one catch where it looked like that LSU wide receiver's foot was pretty clearly out of bounds, but they go to review and still somehow rule that it was a catch. 
LSU comes back and gets a 35-31 win. Badgers had the ball late, coughed up by Mordecai. Just inside of the 50-yard line on the final play of the game, LSU recovered. They take a knee. I don't know. You know, I think being in a game against the 13th-ranked team in the country, no matter how they look because of the portal and all those kind of X factors, they were right there. They had a couple of two-touchdown leads. They, you know, break down and give it away at the end. But you get the two wins at the end of the year, the trophy game win against Nebraska. You get the ax back against Minnesota, and then you have at least a couple of different leads. You don't get blown out. You lose a tight game to the 13th-ranked team in the country in a bowl game on January 1. Overall, I think you feel okay about that heading into the offseason for the Badgers. The college football playoff games, man, that Rose Bowl is just beautiful. Every year, those shots, the above-head shots of how the crowd is split and the painted end zones and the roses at midfield – I cannot think of one reason why we don't play the Super Bowl at the Rose Bowl every year. I'm sure the facilities at Pasadena aren't as top level as some of the other stadiums the NFL is going to go to, but you would be in a major media market, and the visual, the aesthetic of Pasadena and the Rose Bowl, just do that for Super Bowl Sunday. I know it's not the same. I know you won't have the roses at midfield, but you paint the end zones the same way, and you get those sunset shots. When you get to late third quarter, early fourth quarter, and on the horizon you see the oranges and the purples, and I think Herb Street even said in the broadcast, it's like a Bob Ross painting. That's exactly what it is. It's a real-life Bob Ross painting. Play the Super Bowl in Pasadena every single year, or at least play it there more. They have not played a Super Bowl there since 1993. I guess the NFL has some rule now where you can't play at a stadium that does not have an NFL team. I guess that was not a rule prior. Whatever. That scene, and the start time of the Super Bowl is about the same as it is for the Rose Bowl. It's a, what, 4.30 start time for the Rose Bowl and a 5.13 or whatever it is for the Super Bowl. You would get some of those same shots. That would be my take. Play the Super Bowl in Pasadena every year. And while the game itself was not what I would call a pleasing football game to watch, a lot of misfires, a lot of botched trick plays and wide-open wide receivers you couldn't connect with, at the end of the day, you get an overtime game. Michigan had to come back. They get it to overtime. They get the ball first, score a touchdown, and then they got the stop at the end. I don't know what that play call was for Alabama with Milrow at the end. Just at the four-yard line, just snap it to him and run right into the middle of 18 guys and hope you come out the other side. I don't know. That was a bizarre play call at the end of that game. Michigan gets the win. We had them to win at minus two. And then we also won our teaser because that put Alabama plus 8.5, and, and we had Washington plus 10.5. Both of those hits. I'm counting those both as wins. It's my podcast. I'm counting those both as wins. Even though I didn't make them official podcast picks, we went 1-2 and two with our NFL picks. I'm counting both of those. I'm counting the Michigan win, and I'm counting the teaser win, too. If you had a podcast, I'd be fine with you doing that. I'm going to do it. But Michigan gets the win, and then they will take on Washington. Washington late had a nine-point lead with two minutes and 20 seconds left and almost coughed it up. Texas was able to get down and score, but still the clock was against them. If you get the ball back, you should be fine. Then there was an injury for Washington that forced them to use a timeout. That saved 30 seconds for Texas. Eventually, Washington had to punt. They interfered with the punt returner. That gave the that gave Texas 15 extra yards. It ends up where Texas got inside the 20-yard line, didn't they, of Washington? One final gasp toward the end zone. Could not connect. So we end up with what I thought was going to happen. I was right. Finally. Start off 2024 in a different way, John. They We have unbeaten Washington number two and unbeaten Michigan number one. 
They will match up in the college football national championship game next Monday. What time is it? I'm sure it's absurdly late. I don't know why they do this. I don't even know why the second game last night started at what, like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock? If you're on the East Coast, how do you watch sports if you're an adult on the East Coast? I don't get that. If you are a diehard college football fan or a fan of one of those two programs or an alumni, you're up till 1 a.m. watching that game and you've got to come back to work on January 2nd with that kind of a hangover? What time is the national title game? It's always stupid late. Oh, they're actually, it's not bad. 6.30. All right. 6.30 locally, 7.30 Eastern time. That's pretty good. Michigan opens as a four-and-a-half-point favorite. As per the podcast on last Friday, I am sticking with, I think, I will, I'm going to give myself room to make a, ch- a change if I want to by the end of the week podcast, Thursday or Friday. Right now, I'm sticking with Washington as my national championship, and this is our national champion, and this is a preview, a future Big Ten preview of Washington and Michigan national title game Monday at 6.30. Let's wrap it up real quick on the Bucks. I was flipping between that and the Washington-Texas game. Sloppy, disappointing. You want them because of this budding rivalry now at the Pacers and the game ball gate when Giannis scored 64 on the in-season tournament and Tyrese Halliburton going dame time. You want them to just beat this team down and say, yeah, not yet. You're an up-and-coming team, but not yet. And the Bucks had a 13-point lead third quarter. Looked like they were going to do that. Giannis left the game at about the three-minute mark in that third quarter, and that's when Indiana stormed back. That led to a back-and-forth fourth quarter, and the Bucs just went cold. Dame had one of his worst games. He was 3 of 15 or 3 of 16 from the field, 1 of 9 from beyond the arc, could not connect. And the Pacer bench, I don't know what it is about T.J. McConnell of the Indiana Pacers and what makes him Steve Nash against the Bucs and only the Bucs. If you only watched T.J. McConnell games against the Bucs, you would think that guy is an all-star, an MVP candidate, And then you click on his stats, and he's averaging like six points a game in 16 minutes a game this year. For some reason, though, he just has the Bucs mesmerized every time they play him. He was big. The Pacer bench, which is one of the best benches in the NBA, they were outstanding. They outscored the Bucs bench something like 70-13. to Just a no-show from the Bucs bench. And they're still lacking some pieces there. You still don't have Jay Crowder back, guys like that. Overall, though, it's hard to survive the bench effort the Bucks had and then to have Dame have that poor of a shooting night. Giannis was great. Middleton was great, too. But Dame just missed a lot of shots down the stretch, and the Bucks end up dropping one, so they are now 24-9. and Unfortunately, the Celtics keep winning, so you're three back. You're two and a half back, but three back in the loss column. Celtics have a tough one tonight. They're in OKC. Right now, the Thunder are the number two team in the Western Conference. That's tonight in Oklahoma City, so maybe you get one more in the loss column there for Boston. But the Bucks 24-9, you still feel okay about that. They've won eight of their last ten. They have one more with Indiana. Now let's hope you get back on Wednesday at Indiana, 6 o'clock tip time. Three on the road then. They've got a Thursday game right away against a bad San Antonio team, and then they are in Houston rematch with the Rockets, the team they just beat in Milwaukee. That'll be this Saturday night, January 6th. But the last matchup of the year, fifth matchup of the year with that in-season tournament game, fifth matchup of the year with Indiana this Wednesday night. Just disappointing. Just with that rivalry growing, you wanted them to make another statement against that Pacer team. It just didn't end up that way. Indiana wins 122 to 113. What is the difference between this year and last year? I bet they were 24-9 last year. 33 games into the year... They were, oh, they're actually two games better. Last year, 33 games. They were 22-11. and 11. This year, they're 24-9. All right. So they're about where they were last year at this time. No reason to panic sitting in that number two spot right now in the East. Just a bummer because you just, with this new thing now with Indiana, 
you want them to pat him down a little bit, and that just didn't happen with a bad late third quarter and bad fourth quarter. We'll get back after it. You know, I'm, we're probably going to do a Thursday podcast because I'm off on Friday, and I don't think there's anything happening between Thursday and Friday that we have to know of going into the weekend. We'll get you set up for Packers and Bears all on the line this Sunday at Lambeau Field. We will recap that Bucks pacers matchup in Indiana on Wednesday as well. We'll chat with you then. Have a good work week. 